0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. That can be found in your Pew Bible on page 888. I'd ask that each of you open your Bible, or the Pew Bible, to that passage, John three sixteen to 21. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: <clears throat> when we look at this uh, verse, John chapter 3, verse 16... It is easy for our eyes to glaze over. We are so familiar with it. It's hard to hear it afresh or maybe even understand what it was originally intended to communicate. So many different um, people have taught on it. There have been so many different occasions when we've heard it expressed. It is so familiar. We've seen it on uh, posters, on walls, uh, even I'm told at football games at times. John 3:16 is so familiar it is easy for us to miss what it means. Actually it occurs in the middle of a conversation. Nicodemus is talking with Jesus they're conversing together and Nicodemus you remember from last week is a scholar and a significant religious leader with significant political power he's a senator and a great professor And he represents the elite of Jerusalem in his day. He comes to Jesus at night. And he is implicitly asking Jesus why Jesus is doing what he is doing. Why is he cleansing the temple? Why is he making such a big deal about confronting the religion of uh, Jerusalem at the time? And Nicodemus begins his conversation by saying, we know, using we to reference his elite background. Jesus, we know. We, the important people, know. And he accords him the title, Rabbi. We will give you that title, Rabbi. We, the important people. He is hidden in the shadows. uh, candlelight flickering. He's trying to work out why Jesus is doing what he's doing, what his message is. It's a conversation between an elite ruler and a peasant preacher called Jesus. And at this point in the conversation, Nicodemus actually fades into the background. We hear no more of him. We just hear the words of Jesus preaching. Jesus is now expounding the central truth of why he came, what his mission is, what he is indeed all about. In other words, John three verse 16 is, I think, well expressed by the tradition from Denmark and the Danish Christians there that call John 3:16 "The little Bible." It is the central truth of Christianity in very compact. the little Bible. Here there is, in summary, the central truth of all we who are Christians believe. And if you're not yet a Christian this morning, this is a great entrance point for you to figure out what it is that we actually believe, why it is that we gather on a Sunday morning even when it's going to be raining outside, why it is that we're so passionate about Christ, why it is that we give our life to Jesus, why it is that we read the Bible, all this is explained by this, the Little Bible. You see, the Little Bible tells us about the nature of God. It begins by saying, for God so loved. Now, we're familiar, perhaps, the idea that uh, Christians think that God is a God who hates sin, uh, that God is a God of justice. But we Christians also believe that God is a God of love. Now, many people think it is hardest to persuade people of the truth that God is a God of justice. But actually, it is far harder, I find, to persuade people that God really does love them. Even John Calvin put it like this, Men are not easily convinced that God loves them. Oh, that is so true. When C.S. Lewis was going through a time of profound suffering after the death of his wife, He wrote that it was not that he had stopped believing in God when he went through all that personal pain. The challenge that he was facing was that he find it hard to believe in a good God. And so the little Bible starts by seeking to persuade us that God is indeed a God who loves us. Of course, this is a characteristic emphasis of John, the author of this book. He learnt from Jesus, and so later in his letter in the Bible, he tells us that God is love. He has learned from this little Bible. And this love, the little Bible continues, is made even more remarkable because of what it is that God loves. For God so loved the world. Now, Jewish leaders like Nicodemus would have been familiar with the idea that uh, God loved his people, but that God loves all peoples of whatever race, well, that would have been like an electric shock and a thrill for those who will receive it. You see, in John's gospel, the world... is not primarily used to mean the world in its entirety. When John says the world, he doesn't mean all the people in the world. Primarily, what he means, not the world in its entirety, but actually the world in its depravity. You and I know this, don't we? We live in a world that is devoid of any reasonable explanation unless we reason biblically. Our world is a place of beauty but also barbarism. It is a place of heroism and also hellish torture. It is a place of love and hate, of progress and regress. For every step forward with moral improvement, there is the constant entropy of energy degrading. What makes the world depraved is not that it is as evil as conceivable. There is much good in this world. Of course, we will experience it on a regular basis. What makes the world depraved is that even its most conceivable good, even its most glorious good, is at the same time combined with evil and horror. And we, as I say, know this, do we not? We give accolades to artistic works of grandiosity, like the Hollywood movies of Shakespeare in love. And then we find that behind them, there, it seems, is a trial, a trail of tears of abuse. Our world is filled with beautiful people, and even they are part of a hashtag of Me Too narrative of victims of molestation and trauma. You'd have to be blind to not see this truth. Such is our world, mighty and fallen, and all the more depraved for the fallenness of its might. In the same way that uh, punching a hole through a Van Gogh beautiful work of art would be a greater deed of depravity than poking a hole through a five-minute doodle on a piece of paper. Such is our world and marvelous, extraordinary truth. God loves it. As D.A. Carson put it, What is so remarkable about God's love of the world is not that the world is so big, but that the world is so bad. God does not love the world because the world merits love. He loves the world despite the fact the world does not merit love. And so our experience then of God's love, beautiful, glorious, wondrous truth, is not grounded in our worthiness to receive such love. Here often counselors go wrong. When someone is struggling with love, they seek to persuade the counselee that they're a worthy recipient of that love. That is not a solid basis of being assured of God's love. No, our experience of God's love is not grounded in our worthiness to receive such love. It is grounded in who God is. The text does not say, for God so loved the world because the world was such a lovely place. It says, for God so loved the world, implying that the love for the world is based upon nothing else other than the character of God. And so this gives us great security when we doubt the love of God. God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And so we Christians who live in a time of great cultural conflict This text calls us to love the other not because of who they are but because of who God is. And so the little Bible continues, driving home this lesson about the love of God, that this love is shown by a mission activity of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God's giving or sending, that's how verse 17 describes this gift of God, God's sending his Son into the world, is because of this love. So that means that God's love is not sentimental, it is sacrificial. He gave his Son. Those of us who are fathers will know the enormity of such a gift. It's one thing to face death yourself. It's another thing altogether to face the death of a son. But God did not merely send a son. He sent his only son. His only, spoken to emphasize the extraordinary scale of the love of God. His only Son, His only Son. He gave His Son. To give His Son means in context the giving of the incarnation, described in verse 13, that He came down from heaven, and the giving of the crucifixion, described in verse 14, that He was lifted up on the cross. God gave his only son by sending him into the world to experience the extreme indignity of being born as a man and to suffer as well the extreme agony of being crucified on a cross for the sin of the world. So, beloved, if you ever doubt God's love, then you only need to learn to look in one place. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us, loved ones. If you ever doubt God's love, learn to examine the counterintuitive fact nailed into history, the cross. And if everything else in your life seems to shout that God is not a God of love, you have this Solid reminder in history, in fact, that constantly says to you, Oh, God does love, and he is a God of love. And you say, well, is that automatic? Well, no, this experience of God's love is not automatic. And so the little Bible continues to show us that actually it is conditional. Conditional. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him. So God is the initiator. God sent the Son, but we must be the receiver. We cannot be saved unless we believe. Whoever believes, whoever believes, but they must believe. And so, if this verse as a whole is misunderstood through over familiarity, the concept of believing in this verse is particularly misunderstood. To believe in him does not mean to believe merely that he exists, or merely that Christianity is a good moral system, or to believe that God is worthy of our serious consideration, you know. No, to believe, we're told here, is to believe in him. To believe that someone is a pilot of an airplane would mean accepting that he pilots airplanes. Perhaps he has the right credentials and has passed the right classes and has the appropriate um, accolades to be the pilot of an airplane. But to believe in a pilot of an airplane is to be in the plane that he's flying And to believe in Jesus is to place the priorities, practices, and principles of your life under His piloting control. And so this little Bible not only shows us that God's love is not sentimental but sacrificial, it also shows us that His love is not pointless, not meaningless, but purposeful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, it would make no sense to say that the cross of Jesus demonstrates God's love unless the cross of Jesus accomplishes a fitting goal of that love. A man who wants to demonstrate his love to his wife would not so demonstrate that love by throwing himself off a bridge. Jesus' death, if pointless, does not demonstrate his love. it were pointless, that man's wife would rather her husband demonstrated his love by not dying. But if that husband jumped in front of a bullet, fired at his wife, and died to save her, then his love is effectively, for he did save her, and fittingly, demonstrated. Similarly, Jesus' death on the cross fittingly and effectively demonstrates the love of God because the Son, God incarnate, took the punishment that we deserve so that if we believe in Him, well then we should not perish forever but instead enter into the life to the full that is an offer throughout this book of John's Gospel that starts now and lasts for all Eternity. Well, what are the implications of this little Bible? What are its consequences? Verses 17 to 21 show us that. First, verses 17 and 18 because God has sent his Son into the world, that implies that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but came to save the world. So the world is condemned because the world is in rebellion against God and without saving, the world remains in a state of condemnation. Now, that we are condemned unless we believe in Jesus is deeply offensive unless we understand that we are condemned already. Because we are rebels against our creator, we are rightly condemned as a traitor to his country is rightly condemned. And that God provides one way to take this condemnation in our place, only one, only Christ. Is not then an offense against our politically correct sensibilities but a cause of rejoicing to any right-thinking individual. If you're drowning in the sea and a lifeboat appears, comes to rescue you, just one, only one, you would not be offended that there's only one lifeboat Or surprised that if you refuse that one lifeboat, your life remains in peril. So it is with Christ. Believe and you're saved. Reject him and you remain in the sea of condemnation. Such is the implication. But then the consequences in verses 19 to 21 are these. The reason why people do not believe in Jesus to be saved, uh, it, it, that is because they do not want to come into the light and have their deeds exposed as uh, evil. So to believe in Jesus to be saved requires believing that you need to be saved, but this is exactly what people do not want to accept. We, we, we do not want to recognize that reality that our deeds are, are, are dark, and that therefore we need saving. It, 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 it rails against our pride to say that we need saving. And frankly, we would rather grasp any fig leaf of moral dignity than admit the stark reality that we need saving. We'd rather hide in the dark of self sufficiency than come into the light of dependence. On a saviour. Instead then when people believe in Jesus. They are sincerely. Truly. In truth. Accepting the reality. Being real. About who they are. And what this world is. And who Jesus is. Not just their salvation, but all subsequent and any kind of good works are accomplished only in God. And listening to all this is still Nicodemus. He came at night. And the question that he is being faced with is will he come out of the darkness into the light and believe in Jesus to be saved? What about you? It is hard for sophisticated, modern men and women to truly admit they need saving. We have been taught since, um, since the cradle that basically we're good. That basically if we just put enough effort in, if we, if we believe enough in ourselves, then we can do whatever it is that we set our mind to. And perhaps you're here this morning because you know that is not true. You know what other explanation can there be for the state of the world in which we live? What else can explain the hurricanes and earthquakes of our external world, other than that we live in a world that is under the condemnation of God? Are we contribute it to it? We humans, of course, and the world itself echoes a nature that is, as the poet put it, "red in tooth and claw." That is violence. A dog-eat-dog world. Chaotic. Unfair. Why? We are under the condemnation of God. That's why. What else can explain the neuroses and pathologies of our internal world? Other than that we are ourselves part of this world system that is under the condemnation of God. We, we long for a different reality. We long to find an internal world of perfect joy and peace. But the constant presence on every campus, in every society, in every school, of more and more of us these days with battles of internal conflict and demons to fight internally that It all witnesses to what we all know when we speak the truth, that this world is not as it should be, and nor am I as I should be. See, this text, this conversation with Nicodemus this morning is asking whether you will this morning step out of the shadow and in truth accept the truth about yourself, all of ourselves. place your faith in Him. What about you? What about us? We, uh, College Church, is a church that has a grand history of missions. Speak to any College Church member of any long-standing and they'll tell you about this missionary or that missionary, the, the family that sacrificed their children to go abroad and do this, that, and the other, the amount of money we give to missions. We have a grand history of missions. But if we are not just to have a history but a present and a future we must realize that our missiology is not finally rooted in our tradition or our history. It is rooted in our theology. God sent Jesus. Our God is a God of love and that love is expressed in him sending Jesus. And we therefore as the body of Christ Must be ascending people. What about our world, the world that God so loves? Well, it is a call to avoid worldliness, but also worldlessness. Oh, our world is under condemnation, and that means we uh, will not vainly store up riches in this world. We'll practice a radical sacrificial love. We'll give, not as a favor, not as a tip, but with Christ-like generosity, because God gave us His Son. What more precious gift could there be? We will flee from worldliness by practicing Christ-like generosity, but we will also renounce selfish worldlessness. Monastic asceticism is not our way. God did not abandon the world and hide away from it. He sent his son into the world. And we therefore give ourselves to serve the world with the sacrificial love of God, loving our neighbor of whatever race, culture or class. Telling them the truth of this little Bible. For we are Christ's people sent into the world. We are his church, an embassy of heaven in this world. Representing the call of God to believe in the one he sent. Will you pray with me? first in the choir will you ask that question what about you? Will you step out of the shadows and be real about who we all are and what this world is? Unlike other churches uh, we don't come to John 3.16 all the time and it is Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, and it speaks so clearly of the truth of Christ. Here is an opportunity for you. Would you accept it? Lord, we pray that you would bring to yourself those that you are calling. Would you grant faith in Jesus? Lord, we pray uh, for ourselves uh, here at College Church. Would you grant us to live out this reality of being a sent people because we believe in a God who sent Jesus? Lord we also pray, Lord, that you would convince us, persuade us again this morning that we are loved, that our experience of your love is not based finally on our behavior, not on whether we are lovely people, but on the fact that you are a love-filled God. How great is your love, Lord, by your Spirit. Would you fill us again with that love? Assure us that that love was demonstrated at the cross and effectively won, was victorious when uh, the Savior shed his blood for us.